Welcome to Myanmar in a Potshell, the podcast that puts current developments in Myanmar into context. My name is Rodian Ebbikhausen, and today's topic is Myanmar's economy back to the past. I would like to discuss the topic with Richard Horsey, who is a widely published political analyst and has been a close observer of Myanmar for over 25 years. He specializes in the politics and political economy of the country, the situation in Rakhine State, as well as armed conflict and the illicit economy. Since 2009, he has been advisor to the International Crisis Group. He is a fluent Burmese speaker and holds a PhD in psychology from the University College of London. Jared Bissinger is a development economist who focuses on private sector development and labor markets. He has worked extensively in the Asia-Pacific region, especially Myanmar, and has authored dozens of global and nation, national-level reports on the private sector, the business environment, and the labor markets. So thank you for joining us today, and let's start with the discussion. Soon after the coup from February 2021, economic experts predicted an economic collapse of Myanmar. And I would like to know, did this collapse happen? And what does economic collapse actually mean? So what can we understand if we talk about economic collapse? Maybe, Richard, you can start. Thanks, Rodion. It's an interesting question because, as you hinted, it depends very much on how we define a collapsed economy. You know, Myanmar does not have a modern developed economy. In many ways, the Myanmar economy has been collapsed in some ways uh, for, for many decades. So the period of reforms which started after 2011, there was an attempt to develop a more modern economy, more integrated into the world. You know, the first uh, bonds uh, and, and T-bills were, were issued by the central bank. Um, the first debt ratings were starting to be put together. But this was an economy that was still running very much on cash with uh, banking penetration quite low, with loans uh, quite low. Uh, no real business loans had ever been issued in Myanmar. So, you know, mortgages were issued, uh, loans for building uh, apartment buildings uh, were issued. No loans had been issued to build a factory or develop a business. So, you know, in a, in a sense, uh, it wasn't the kind of modern developed economy which can suddenly uh, collapse. An enormous part of the economy was in the uh, in the informal sector, operating beyond the bounds of, of uh, macroeconomic policy, um, and an awful lot of illicit economy as well. A lot of unrecorded trade, a lot of uh, drug uh, and uh, hardwood smuggling, uh, illicit casinos. So all of this creates an environment in which, uh, and, you know, we, we're not facing, uh, you know, a situation like Argentina and the debt crisis or, or, or when a country just kind of suddenly falls off a falls off an economic cliff. At the same time, from a different perspective, yes, the economy was massively damaged by the coup. It sucked all of the confidence uh, out of the uh, business environment. It drove away foreign investment, uh, caused a huge capital flight. Um, there was there was uh, uh, also uh, the end of major development assistance as well, which had been a significant uh, contributor to Myanmar's budget. So, coming on the back of already crisis from the from the effects of the of the global COVID pandemic, uh, the, the 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 coup was a was a was a real economic uh, catastrophe, and especially for the poorest people uh, in the country who are facing really uh, unimaginably difficult odds. 
Jared, do you have the same perception? Do you would you say that uh, this is a correct description, or do you disagree, or would would you say there is maybe another layer to it? Well, yeah. I mean, I think if you look at the if you look at the macro level, um, you know, you really don't need to go much further than than looking at what happened to GDP in in twenty twenty one. It fell by eighteen percent, and and that's really a that's a pretty dramatic statistic. It's important to also keep in mind that that it's not just a single crisis that's affected Myanmar. This is coming on top of of the crisis that was COVID that that already had some pretty significant effects on the economy and on key sectors. So it really has been, you know, for, for Myanmar's economy, it's really been a double crisis. Uh, I, I think, unfortunately, the effects of the coup are going to be much more significant and long-lasting. Every country in the world has experienced COVID, and in a lot of places that's led to a crisis. But but the coup in Myanmar is, is you know, I think as Richard pointed out, It, it's going to have this longer-term effect on confidence, and, and you're already seeing that. Um, you're seeing a, a you know a pretty dramatic drop in investment. You're seeing a lot of uh, people leaving the country. You're seeing jobs being destroyed. Estimates of you know three million jobs or full-time equivalent jobs that have been destroyed. So you know a really significant effect on on the economy. You know it's it's really there, there's I guess a lot of areas where you can point to as, as you know, pretty significant challenges. Uh, I think I had particular concern about, you know, collapse in some of the key facilitating sectors, things like uh, banking, telecommunications, power. These are things that businesses throughout the economy, people throughout the economy depend on. And these sectors have really done uh, pretty poorly. You're looking at, you know, a pretty big drop in electricity production, The banking sector now has, has just been decimated by the coup. Uh, telecommunications obviously has been a um, been a very sort of sore source of um, of tension, obviously because that's how people in the resistance are communicating, and so it's been targeted for political reasons, and that's had a, a pretty significant impact on the sector. And of course, these things, these facilitating sectors, when you see changes like what you're seeing now, that has a carry-on effect. And, you know, all this is made worse by what's happening in the global economy, the, the growth in fuel and commodity prices, crisis like uh, what, you're, what you're seeing in Ukraine right now, which is only, um, you know, furthering the cost of uh, the, the growth and cost of things like fuel. And that's leading to costs of uh, transportation cost increased, et cetera. And that's really just adding to the to the crisis that, that you're seeing in Myanmar. I will say, you know, well, really what you saw was a, a pretty dramatic collapse immediately after the coup. Um, there has been some degree of stabilization, especially in the last six to nine months, um, in some limited sectors. And again, it's very limited. You have seen some degree of rebound, but it's really set against overall a pretty significant collapse in the last 15 months. Given your, your observation that Myanmar's economy has not been like a modern economy and not been so deeply integrated like many other economies. Would you say that that there is a kind of, I don't know if we can say that made it in a way resilient uh, to a total collapse like as we see maybe in Sri Lanka or as we have seen in Argentina? And I, I mean it like uh, in, in the way that, so the economy has shrunk, a lot of people lost their income and poverty is on the rise, but people seem to somehow meddling through Uh, would you say that this is an accurate observation or would you say that this is misleading? 
I think we should be cautious about uh, the extent to which ordinary Myanmar people can muddle through in this situation. It's true that there have been crises in different parts of Myanmar for decades uh, and that you know, people have survived in one way or another through different coping mechanisms. But if we look at what the main coping mechanisms have been, they may not be available today in the way that they once were. The first thing is that this is not a localized crisis. This is not Cyclone Nargis, which affected one part of the country while leaving other parts of the country unscathed. This is a crisis that has affected the entirety of the country. So there's no place to hide. There's no other opportunities you can move to within the country. Uh, family in different parts of the country can't help you. Across the, the, the country, there's been this huge impact. But also because of the, uh, the, the, the hangover from COVID globally, it means that, you know, Labor migration, which has been one of the other key coping mechanisms over the years, is also not available. The Thai economy may recover, tourism may pick up, it may become a source of significant jobs for Myanmar people again, but that recovery has been much slower than most people expected. And at the moment, it's having difficulty uh, absorbing uh, the numbers of, work, of Myanmar workers who are already in Thailand. It's not a, a source, uh, um, you know, an easy source of, of, of uh, income for, for, for people who, who are left with nothing, with nothing else. Um, you know, the illicit economy was already kind of saturated. It will always absorb more people, but it's not, it's not that lucrative for the people at the bottom rung. Um, and uh, the rural economy, which has sustained uh, people, uh, you know, at least in basic food and so forth, you're right that at the moment, uh, the rural economy seems to be holding up, even in the face of very difficult situation with a shortage of fertilizer, very high input prices uh, of inputs that are mostly imported. But how long can this go on? Uh, I'm, I'm not sure. I think, you know, the, the, the crises could be building up there as well. But the bottom, uh, you know, the bottom line on this is what does muddling through look like to an ordinary poor family? What it looks like is skipping meals, is not sending your children to school, uh, children not having a balanced uh, sufficient diet. It looks like stunting over years. It's a silent emergency which will come across in stunted children with intellectual uh, uh, challenges, you know, difficulty at school in the years to come, not as a wave of sudden hunger in the coming months. And that kind of crisis is just as damaging uh, as, as a famine, um, but it's not as visible and it doesn't energize the same, you know, local and international responses. So I think it's... it's uh, it's a much more serious situation uh, than uh, most people in Myanmar have faced, and it affects a different set of populations uh, that have not been as deeply affected uh, in the past. Um, yeah, thank you very much. What I what I would like to talk about a little bit is like, well, how would you describe um, Myanmar's economy a bit more in detail? You said it's not a kind of modern economy, but it is a Uh, it was like a pre-modern economy and it just evolved after 2011 into something more modern. Um, I don't know, like one of the uh, the authors of this podcast, Hans Bernsoner, always says it, he would describe it as a so-called Dana economy. And why does he say that? Because people tend to um, give, uh, donate a lot of their income uh, to the monasteries and the monks. And there is like this second circle of economy because the monks and the 
pagodas, they give back like teaching, they give food. And so there is like a second circle. So uh, maybe, um, Jared, you can start explaining like what is different or what was different about Myanmar's economy and how did this before 2011 economy work and why this might work again or not work again this time? Yeah, well, Myanmar's economy certainly changed quite a bit from 2011 until 2021. And, you know, some of the more obvious ways you can see this are in things like investment patterns and trade patterns. There were some really tangible changes. Telecommunications is a great example. Uh, back in 2012, uh, the exchange rates got got harmonized. There used to be many exchange rates and they got brought together into one exchange rate. And, and so changing money went from something that you had to do kind of in the back alley almost to something that was official and formal. Um, you saw a dramatic wave of investment come in that's really been unlike anything you've seen in the past in Myanmar. And, you know, it's, it's been different in, um, in scale. It's been um, different in degree of sort of international engagement, technological depth. Um, beyond just that, you've seen a lot of institutional development over the, 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 the course of the last decade. Uh, you've seen a, a, a move towards um, a greater rule of law across the economy, um, more openness. Uh, trade, for example, used to be heavily regulated before 2011. And, and that really, from the period 2011 to 2021, uh, really was liberalized quite a bit. Um, and so you've seen an economy that's changed in, in a lot of different ways. And generally speaking, pre-COVID, people were significantly better off than they were in 2011. That said, you know, you've seen a, a lot of regression in the last 15 months. Um, you know, as, as sort of Richard mentioned in his earlier comments, a lot of the, the challenges you're seeing are, they're, they're almost silent. Um, health issues, education issues, people skipping meals is a huge challenge now. I, I mean, that all combined with prices that have gone up pretty dramatically. One estimate that I was looking at a week or two ago is saying that food prices may have gone up as much as 40%, which is, uh, I mean, that's a real challenge for a population that is um, it's already spending the majority of their income on food, that the average person is spending over half of their household income on food. So, you know, it's, it's pretty significant. And are there are there fallback mechanisms, things like the, the you know, the social systems that, um, that, you know, are run through monasteries, monks? Yes, absolutely. They definitely provide a, you know, a degree of resilience. Um, but, you know, certainly they're, they're, I don't think, enough to compensate for the overall decline that you've seen in the last 15 months, which has really been significant. But certainly, you know, they help provide um, some degree of resilience that, um, that that's really needed in this time. Richard, would you like to add something to this? I mean, I would just say that we shouldn't uh, forget that the um, the social safety net provided by the monasteries is, is as Jared said, it's quite sensitive to economic conditions, right? I mean, there are always rich people who will donate, but it is a much more it has much more depth than that, and it relies on a broad base of donations. 
uh, in 2007, when uh, economic difficulties related to fuel price increases and subsequent food price increases put the squeeze on the monasteries at that time, you had this, this sort of double hit of, of reduced donations uh, and, and, and economic uh, difficulties, uh, the, the monasteries couldn't cope. Uh, and the abbots responded with, uh, with, a, with a political move, actually. That was what set off the so-called Saffron uh, Revolution, really, was this, was this feeling that monasteries and the, and the services they provided were getting to, to breaking point. Uh, they're at breaking point again. Uh, it's potentially worse now. The, the difference is that the Sangha uh, has a different position now uh, than it did in 2007. It's a much more divided Sangha. It's a much more cautious Sangha in terms of how it navigates the current political situation. Um, and, and so we haven't yet seen, you know, the, the monasteries really transition from, uh, uh, you know, uh, trying to manage a crisis to, to, to going out on the streets and, and demanding something different. But the conditions are rather similar. Why is that? Why do you think the, the Sangha is much more cautious? So you said it's more divided. So why is it more divided? Has it something to do with the period of transition or is it something totally different? Look, I think uh, you had this period after 2011 uh, of angst in the conservative Buddhist circles that you know, modernity and secularism was going to rise as a complement to the opening up. They looked at Thailand and they felt they, you know, they felt the erosion of traditional Buddhist uh, life and principles in Thailand and the rise of sort of secularism and 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 they feared that. Uh, and so, uh, you know, they, partly the monks uh, from 2011 were focusing on on strengthening Buddhism, on strengthening the you know the the, the nationalistic and conservative elements of Buddhism that kept. Uh, the monkhood uh, at the center of national life. Um, but when the NLD came in, uh, the NLD, you know, the, they was, the NLD saw the conservative elements of the monkhood, Mabathar and so on, as their political enemies. Because those monks had really, you know, supported uh, uh, the USDP, they had, uh, they had played politics. Uh, and so when the NLD came in, it wasn't, It wasn't because the NLD was anti-Buddhist. It wasn't because many in the NLD didn't share that conservative Buddhist worldview. Many of them did, but they saw the monks, especially Mabathar and those and those nationalist monks, as uh, as their political adversaries. And so the NLD spent many years, its its years in office, trying to remove the monkhood from political life and putting it back in a kind of uh, religious box. Um, uh, And so when, when the coup came, uh, the monks, the, the broad base of monks, were not likely to come out fighting for the NLD for two reasons. One, they didn't see a political affinity with them. But second, the NLD had been breaking those bonds between politics uh, and religion, which they felt had, had, had been, uh, you know, put a lot of pressure on them uh, in, the, in the lead up to the election. So uh, that's one thing. Uh, on the other hand, most monks don't feel uh, that they want to throw their lot in with this military regime. Uh, it's intensely unpopular. Uh, it's, uh, it's, it's doing things which, uh, which, which the, the, the monkhood, including the conservative monkhood, are not, are not comfortable with. So where do they go? They don't want to, most of them don't want to tilt to the regime. They don't feel comfortable tilting to the NLD dominated resistance. So they're kind of uh, split 
not split down the middle in monasteries, but split in their own kind of minds and tendencies about what do we do. And at the edges, of course, you have many monks, uh, you know, the, the, the big monastery in Mandalay, um, uh, as an example, which have been demonstrating every day against the coup. And on the other end of the spectrum, you have those monks who've been trying to get close to power, as some monks always have. But in the middle, you have this broad base of, of monks who really are not quite sure how to navigate the current situation. So thank you very much for this interesting digression. Uh, I think we, we let's go back to the more to the economic economic topic. Like before the coup, a lot of money, either development aid and investment aid, fl flew into the country. And what would you say is something left of it? Is there still are there still structures, institutions, or money left in the country? Uh, well, in terms of um, you know what came in, say over that that ten year period from 2011 to 2021. Yes, there was development aid, um, and you know, obviously that that tends to be used fairly quickly. Sometimes that's invested in physical capital. Uh, certainly, that's invested in human capital, and and that's I think one of the things that that one of the points of difference between you know ten years ago and now. There's been a, a pretty significant development in the human capital of of Myanmar people, the knowledge, and. You know, yes, in some areas that's uh, that's political or other types of knowledge, but that's also you know economic knowledge, uh, knowledge to be more productive in your workplace, etc. And so that can have some type of you know residual benefit, even if people are operating in an economy that is um, you know that's clearly not functioning like it was two years ago. Uh, there's still a, a sort of a greater human capital when it comes to all range of things in the economy. Uh, you know, the other big thing that came into the country over that decade was foreign investment. And while some have left, uh, the bulk have remained and, and look likely, well, at least many look likely to remain for a period of time. For example, you can look at the apparel sector. Something on the order of about 700 or so investments came in and a couple hundred have left, but there's still somewhere around 500, a little more than 500 that are still in country, still operating. And the vast majority of those came into Myanmar over the last uh, decade or so. And so, you know, there, there's certainly, you know, there's a lot of differences in, in the economy of Myanmar in 2011 and, and what you're looking at now. You're still looking at an economy that's much more globally connected, that is much more capable and productive. Um, obviously, the last 15 months have been a pretty dramatic setback, but it's not like all of the economic gains have been undone. Certainly, a, a significant part of them have, but there are still some residual benefits that I think are going to be helpful for Myanmar over the coming years uh, in the face of some pretty significant challenges. There has been some criticism that a lot of investment money went through the hands of cronies. W would you say that that um, this is a, a correct description or an observation that there um, that the money because they needed people who have some experience in the economy of Myanmar to to bring that money to? So um, and and what about those 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 uh, streams of money? Is it still there? And would you agree with that observation? Um, maybe Richard, that a lot of money went through the hands of military or military related people and so it was mainly pushing or supporting the military well in a um 
uh, in a sense, Myanmar went through its Russian oligarch phase before the opening, right? Uh, in the couple of years before uh, General Thanchway handed over power and uh, departed the scene, he presided over a selling off of an enormous number of assets, buildings, land, state-owned enterprises, uh, in, a, in a non-transparent way and in a way uh, that, that many well-connected people uh, profited from enormously. Right. So that was before the opening. Um, after the opening, um, the, as Jared has described, there was gradually a bit more rule of law in the economy. And what that meant was that there was a kind of triage of the old national entrepreneurs, uh, or, or as they're more commonly called, uh, cronies, uh, the ones who you know, had only been able to make money through privileged access to licenses and permits and, and power, uh, they found uh, the going was pretty tough. Um, why would an international business coming in want to partner with uh, a Myanmar business that offered nothing? Uh, in terms of uh, market access, skill, uh, capital. Uh, you know, in the old days, they, they saw advantage because they were linked to power. But once you didn't need that, uh, these, these, uh, these businesses were, were in a sense, uh, uh, you know, going to find it difficult to navigate that new environment. So it was a kind of triage. And the ones who'd been uh, actually able to develop decent businesses uh, and skills were able to to, to continue and, and make money in that new environment. Uh, but those who'd been really reliant only on 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 the gift from from close connections to to generals, uh, they found life more difficult. Um, and so it's true that uh, the people who were best place domestically to take advantage uh, of, of the new economy were not the small and medium-sized enterprises. It took a while before the playing field was amenable to the emergence of, of those, and many have emerged. Uh, the ones who were there ready to go were some of the, some of the big ones. Um, but it wasn't purely connections to the military. Uh, it was previous military connections that gave them that ability. Um, but but it, was, it was, you know, business skill, which, uh, which meant that they survived in many cases, I think. Okay, so I would like to come to the controversial topic of economic sanctions, which I think play a major role. So parts uh, of the revolution or the National Union, they call for strong economic sanctions. We have had, especially in the beginning, the discussion with the garment industry and in the last months, the oil and gas industry. So I, I would like to ask both of you, but maybe I start with, with Jared. Like, first of all, how effective do you think have sanctions against Myanmar been in the past? And what do you think about sanctions in this situation or the sanctions as they are discussed at the moment? Well, it's certainly a, it's a charged question. Um, you know, there was a significant history of sanctions in Myanmar, um, you know, during the SPDC era. Um, some fairly broad reaching, um, you know, I guess there's perhaps some room for debate about how effective they were. Overall, it doesn't look like they were, you know, the major driving force in terms of changing the, the views and direction of the SPDC military regime. Um, what are their prospects now? Um, you know, I, I'd say generally speaking, To, to create revolutionary change and to really alter the direction that things are going, the prospects for sanctions are pretty limited. But we have to understand that, that there are lots of different types of sanctions and that they're going to affect uh, individuals and the economy very differently. Uh, you can have targeted sanctions that go after 
one person or a, a you know, group of people who are high up in the military regime. You can have travel bans. Those sorts of individually named and targeted sanctions seem to be sensible, but their effects are going to be limited more broadly. Um, there's also ways to circumvent those. Um, people high up in the military regime can work through friends, allies, create new companies with different names, etc. So there's certainly tools to circumvent them. And I think it's important to point out that those people who are the most well-connected, they are the ones with the resources and, and the means to circumvent sanctions. Um, what are the prospects for sanctions more broadly? Uh, I, I think they're, generally speaking, pretty poor. Um, why is that? Well, there's just not a good way to target sanctions so that they affect only only people in the military. And that's because the military controls the state and can therefore take the pain of those sanctions and spread it around because if there is some type of sanction, then the military can then react to it. It can, for example, if there's sanctions on um, on foreign currency, then what's the military going to do? Well, they're going to they're go through the series of increasingly um, rigid foreign currency controls in Myanmar. They're going to find ways to extract foreign currency from domestic businesses and individuals. They're the ones that have the control and power to do that. And so it's very likely that they will pass on the pain of those sanctions. Um, then, you, you, you know, you see calls for targeted sanctions, things like the, you know, the garment industry. To me, this makes, you know, quite frankly, it doesn't really make a lot of sense. The garment industry is, is about as disconnected from the military regime as you can get. Ownership is almost all foreign and private. Um, it's a very labor-intensive industry. It's an industry with very low margins. It's, it's a real challenge to make a lot of money from that. And because it's mostly foreign businesses, most of the money that is made, at least profit beyond your labor costs, rental costs for factories, etc. A lot of that doesn't even enter Myanmar because these are international businesses and they do those transactions through Singapore, wherever their headquarters may be. And so the, um, you know, the actual effects that could come from that in terms of depriving the military of money are incredibly limited. And I think that would be a, a, a very counterproductive way to try to, um, to try to affect change in Myanmar. So if I understand it correctly, you would not endorse sanctions uh, in a broad, broader sense. Um, and what about you, Richard? What do you think? And maybe we can, we talked about the textile garment industry. What about the oil and gas industry, which has been a heated debate around uh, the sanctioning? What is your take on this? I mean, I'd agree with what Jared said. We, you have to see sanctions as a tool, not an ideology. Right? You have, a, you have a, something you want to achieve, and then you look and you see what tools you need to achieve that. And sanctions are almost never successful on their own. They require a political strategy to be attached to them. They require a theory of change, an idea of how a specific set of, of, of constructed sanctions are going to achieve the ends you want and what the negative side effects would be and some evaluation of whether... In, all in all, the benefits uh, outweigh the negative side effects, right? So that's the kind of process you would go through. 
the reality of sanctions in Myanmar and some other countries historically is, is that they have not been used as a tool of change. They have been used as an ideology. They've been used as a way to show uh, that countries are doing something without actually having to do anything. And that's where they failed. Now, I think the big difference this time round uh, is that, firstly, uh, the Myanmar people have been overwhelmingly calling for sanctions. You know, in the past, it was very hard to know what ordinary Myanmar people wanted in the 90s, in the early 2000s. Certainly advocacy groups, certainly some of those who claim to represent or actually represented uh, Myanmar people were calling for sanctions. But, you know, those of us who lived inside the country at that time, I think it was less clear that there was a sort of broad-based support within the country for, for, for those measures. But if we look at the situation now, I mean, the most significant pressure, sanctions pressure on the regime is not anything that anyone outside is doing. Uh, it's the boycotts by Myanmar people of military products, for example. I mean, that's had a really significant impact on uh, on, on military business incomes. Um, so, you know, uh, outside sanctions are, are, are probably uh, not not as impactful as as other things as, as what Myanmar people are doing themselves, uh, and the policy decisions of the regime itself are causing huge economic pain. Because the reality is, if we look at the politics of this, after the coup, both sides were convinced that a normally functioning economy was to the benefit of their adversaries. The regime did not want cash liquidity after the coup because it felt that people's savings would likely go, in some cases, to funding the resistance. And so part of the, part of the squeeze on liquidity after the coup was not just the freezing of the banking system uh, because of a run. It wasn't just that there wasn't enough cash notes. It was that the regime was deliberately restricting access to cash for a political purpose. Uh, on the other side, the resistance was very keen to collapse the economy. They, they wanted to make the country ungovernable uh, for the regime. And one element of that was making it economically ungovernable. And so in a sense, both sides were fighting against a normal economy. Um, in that situation, uh, whatever outside sanctions there are are probably quite limited uh, in, in their additional impact. Uh, and, you know, it's quite proper that countries would want to uh, impose targeted sanctions on individuals. The, the purpose of those kind of targeted sanctions, the kind that, that Jared mentioned, is not to affect policy change normally. It's a symbol of opposition uh, to those uh, specific people uh, and, and their actions. Uh, and that's quite proper. When we come to specific sexual sanctions, I mean, going after the garment industry as a way to deprive money of the regime is, is, is a very bad idea. As, as Jared, uh, Jared has said, you will hit the jobs of ordinary people and you won't impact the, the regime's finances at all. The, the pressure on oil and gas companies to withdraw, you know, you have blood on your hands, you, you shouldn't fund the regime. Uh, I mean, it, it, it turned out to be massively counterproductive and, and not because no one realized this was going to happen. It was well known that forcing out uh, um, uh, existing investors uh, would basically give a windfall to the regime, right? If you force a, a company to default on its contract, uh, especially when the contract says that, that all assets uh, defer, devolve to the regime, um, then, then you're going to provide a windfall. And that's exactly what happened. Uh, Total and Chevron 
leaving is not any kind of uh, damage to the regime. It's it's actually boosted uh, by several hundred million dollars their their income, right? So if the aim of that pressure to get those companies out was not symbolic, but was to affect the finances of the regime, it was a spectacular failure. Um, so you know, different sanctions, different impact, uh, and and there needs to be a there needs to be a, a, a theory of change uh, behind. Uh, okay, thank you. So, uh, taking this this last point is maybe this um, this idea about sanctions. You said it's either symbolic um, or it, it it can be very symbolic, but sometimes it does not lead to the effect intended. Um, so, would you say that there is a connection to like a frustration uh, on some of the actors, like to say at least we have to do something and we cannot leave it like that? Well, I think it's partly that the, the 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 pressure on the sanction sending countries, the political pressure on those governments to do something and be seen to be doing something. But I think uh, over the last fifteen months, it's been even more kind of depressing in a way because uh, Myanmar, unlike in the past, has been a relatively low international foreign policy priority. Very sadly, very unfortunately, other crises have been seen as. As, as more important, more pressing, whether it was Ethiopia, whether it was uh, Afghanistan, uh, now Ukraine, uh, there hasn't been room for, for really serious consideration of Myanmar. And at a time when Western policymakers didn't really see any particularly effective levers they could pull, they didn't see really what options they had uh, on the political front uh, to, to respond after the coup, other than condemnation. Uh, they didn't see, uh, you know, what leverage they had to change the situation. Uh, they then really sanctions have become a fallback position, a way to avoid thinking and doing anything else. Uh, we'll put some sanctions on that will show that we're concerned and then we'll move on uh, to another problem. Okay, thank you. So a number of mostly Western investors pulled out after the coup and Some others uh, have been thinking about pulling out or actually did it. Or So who would you say is left and where does investment still come from? Or maybe we can put it a more provocative, like other countries who are still engaged and maybe even benefiting economically from Myanmar's turmoil and its isolation. Yeah, so uh, we could talk about the, the first part of that, which is, um, you know, what investment is left? Where is it coming from? And then I'll, I'll get to the second. Um, Most of the investment that came, you know, in that 10-year period, that's um, mostly still there. You've had a number of businesses pull out, but, you know, as you've seen in the case of Telenor, Telenor has left, but but their business is still there, but now in the hands of, of a different company that's in large part owned by a, a major Myanmar crony. Um, you've seen, you know, a number of of businesses pull out entirely. Um, but there were thousands, literally thousands of investments over that period. And, and the bulk of those remain. Um, one of the areas where you've, you know, where you've really seen some, I, I guess, unexpected, unintended benefit is in some of the export-led sectors. Over the last 15 months, you've seen a really big depreciation in the currency. It's it's gone down, you know, over um, what from 1300 chat to now the market rate is is 2000. And and what that's done is it's made it less expensive to manufacture and then export from Myanmar. 
And so, yeah, there was an initial drop for a lot of these businesses, but now you're looking at something where export-oriented businesses, um, their costs can actually be less expensive than they were uh, 15 months ago. And, um, and so, you know, you've seen, you know, small bits of growth there. Um, so, you know, are those businesses profiting? Um, look, I don't, I don't have any great insights. Certainly there's the potential for that, but they're also up against, uh, significantly higher costs in a number of other areas, transportation, uh, facilitation fees, much greater costs when it comes to dealing with bureaucracy. Um, having to pay for their own generators in, instead of being able to draw power off of the grid. So there's been a, you know, a lot of changes um, to, to both costs and, um, and potential profit. And, and you know, those are some of the sectors that are doing better. Um, in other sectors, tourism, for example, there's really no positive. Um, it's, it's increased cost and a dramatic drop in, in revenue. So, you know, businesses that had come into Myanmar and invested in the tourism sector, for example, are, are you know, they're going to be in a, in a much, much more dire state. So, sorry, Rodan, what was the second part of that question? No, the second part was, are there many, even people who are, who are uh, benefiting economically from the situation? Uh, yeah, I, I mean, absolutely there is. Um, you know, you've seen, obviously, a big drop in investment, generally speaking, in the last kind of 15 months or so. The investment that's coming... Uh, is is it's almost all from Asia, and a big part of that is from China. Um, interestingly, a lot of that is is really small manufacturing investment. Now there have been a couple kind of high profile, very big dollar uh, power investments. There's been you know some renewed discussion around um, you know the economic corridor connecting Jiaopu to China. Um, certainly, China's going to have a significant a significantly greater degree of, of leverage to push forward projects now. But, you know, it, it's happening in a few places, but it's not like there's been this dramatic boom of um, really, really high dollar Chinese investment across major sectors, infrastructure, power, etc. But certainly there have been a few things and China is much better placed now to, um, to push those things forward. And just generally speaking, Chinese businesses... Uh, many of them remain in Myanmar, and, and some of them could be facing economic conditions that are more favorable. For example, the, you know, the, the drop in competition to get workers now could make it easier for some of them to do business. So, um, yeah, generally speaking, there, there's, there's definitely some beneficiaries, but set against a, a backdrop of generally uh, worse conditions across the board, with some exceptions. Okay. Richard, do you agree or would like to add to this point? Yeah, I'd agree with that. I think internationally, one of the obvious beneficiaries is Russia. Um, you know, Myanmar and Russia have kind of found each other in the dark, right? Um, uh, after the coup, Russia was the most important international ally of the Myanmar military and provided a lot of reassurance to Min Aung Hlaing and, and confidence that he could, he could weather the international diplomatic storm with the support of Russia. And now after the uh, invasion, I mean, Myanmar is probably Russia's uh, staunchest international ally. Um, uh, it's completely uncritical in its, in its, in its backing of, of Moscow. And, and that's not unimportant, although Myanmar doesn't control its, uh, the regime does not control Myanmar's seat at the United Nations. So that hasn't flowed through to votes. I think domestically, um, 
you know, the other the other players who've benefited, and they're not only domestic, are, are the participants in the illicit economy. If you're doing anything illegal, improper, you know, it's now the good times. Um, uh, whether that's uh, you know heroin production, which has gone up significantly as a result of the economic. Uh, uh, difficulty that farmers are facing, but also the security difficulty that they're facing, uh, whether it's methamphetamine, uh, record seizures across the region uh, since the coup of, of Shan State meth. Uh, you know, the more chaos there is, the more uncertainty there is, the more that uh, those kind of big players in the illicit economy can benefit. And that's definitely to the de- to the long-term detriment of, of Myanmar and, 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 and the, all of its people. Okay, so um, like the ongoing political struggle in the country needs funding, obviously. So the SAC can rely on oil, gas, jams and timber. And there have been like war economies have been established in the areas of the ethnic armed organizations or some of the ethnic armed organizations. And the NUG has been mainly lived on donations. Um, But recent statistics show, if I'm not really wrong, that those donations are going down, which also might have to do with that people are struggling with their, their income and their life. So what, what can you tell us about these different, if I may say so, business models? So, so how sustainable are they and what challenges um, are there in, in the near future? So, I, so it's like the three parts for the SAC, for the NUG and maybe for the EAOs. Yeah, that's a, that's a large and very complicated question. Uh, the way I would start would be to say that um, the regime uh, is interested not only in bolstering its own finances, but denying uh, income to the resistance movements. Uh, so it's a two-way battle. Uh, and it's the same thing for the resistance movements. They're not only trying to uh, raise revenue themselves, they're trying to deny the regime revenue and so there's a there's a there's a four-way kind of battle uh, going on um, and we've seen some successes along all of those fronts right the extent to which uh, the Myanmar public has refused for example to pay electricity bills that's still continuing a uh, very high level of adherence to to uh, to bill uh, to, to refuse to pay your bills or pay your bills at the last possible moment when when uh, you know there's no alternative that's really uh, obliterated the liquidity in the in the electricity uh, ministry uh, very very successful if, if you know if, if the objective is to, is to suck money out of there um, I think the, the the regime has not been as effective uh, as it uh, perhaps had hoped in limiting the extent to which uh, the resistance can use uh, financial flows within the country to fund itself uh, you know there's been some very high profile seizing of bank accounts and so on but The reality is that micropayment systems that were developed uh, over the uh, over the 10 years of openness, it's quite difficult to monitor and track these things. You know, millions of transactions, small transactions, party to party transactions a day are not the kind of thing you can sort of download into a spreadsheet, give a glance over and go, aha, that's the guilty person. The, the regime doesn't have the technology, the ability, the tools to, to really crack down on this. And so, uh, and, and its attempt to sort of freeze liquidity has caused a lot of pain to people and the economy, but it, it hasn't prevented uh, money from flowing, uh, leaking out of the banking system, uh, and it hasn't uh, stopped the Hundi systems working, and, and it hasn't stopped funding to the, to the resistance. The resistance, in a sense, uh, the NUG particularly, has set a very high bar. It's talked of a $800 million budget. It's talked about paying all of the striking workers and funding the, the violent resistance efforts and, and self-defense efforts. And that's an enormously expensive and complicated thing to do. Uh, and 
it's not surprising that it's fallen far short in its uh, in its donations and, and income uh, of the of the bar that it set itself. But it's you know the NUG has been incredibly inventive in coming up with new ways to keep people, particularly in the diaspora, funding them. Um, you know, initially the lottery was very well subscribed. It made a lot of money, but that kind of tailed off after a few months. And then, you know, they came up with, uh, with, uh, uh, other, other things. The most recent, uh, auctioning off, uh, Minong house. I mean, that's like selling plots of land on the moon. No one thinks they're going to own the plot of land, but lots of people want to have that certificate on the wall that they, you know, they've, they've got, uh, one of the bricks of Minong house. So, you know, very inventive. Um, but ultimately, um, uh, it, it's not probably enough to do what the NUG wants, which is to be an administration which has a full budget to fund uh, not only the resistance, but 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 you know much of the country uh, as a whole. So maybe maybe Jared, you can say something about this sustaining or how to sustain the funding for the different actors. Yeah, I mean, I, I think you know if you just look at the the areas that that are controlled by the military, those that are controlled by the NUG uh, or PDFs, EAOs, et cetera. Uh, the military really is in, in largely in control of the country's economic centers, uh, Yangon, Mandalay. Um, and, and it gives them an ability to extract money in a way that the NUG can't do. Um, that I think combined with the fact that the military is willing to do things that the NUG, that PDFs simply won't do to extract money from the population. And, you know, that, that does give them an advantage, uh, you know, in talking with businesses in Myanmar. I, I remember talking to one who had, you know, had paid the military taxes and they said, it's not that we want to, but the NUG can't protect us from the sack. And I, I think that, you know, that, that speaks a lot to the situation that they're in. They're not, they don't want to pay taxes to the military, but they feel like they don't have a choice if they want to, you know, continue having a business, if they want to be able to continue to pay their employees. And, you know, so it creates, a, I think, a, a very bad situation for them, but one that's, you know, that's unavoidable. I'd agree with Richard in saying that the, you know, that the resistance has been incredibly creative um, and, and, and bold in the ways that they've gone about trying to raise money. Um, you know, they don't have the ability to, to force people to pay in the same way that the military does. And um, I, I think it says, you know, two things. Number one, it, it just because so much of the money going to the NUG is voluntary, it speaks to their legitimacy and the views of the Myanmar people about, you know, who really they, they think should be governing the country. But also it, it does raise questions and challenges around sustainability. You know, it's it's as we talked about earlier. It's a country that's that's suffering economically, and people aren't going to have a lot of money to to give in donations to the NUG or to other causes. And so, it it, it does raise some big questions about sustainability. Um, that you know, I think it's going to be a, a challenge in the months and years going forward. Okay, well, that brings me to my last question. So. Um... If this sustainability, especially for the NUG, is so difficult, so how could or should uh, international investors or maybe in this case more international development aid resume and approach the country without harming the people? I, I think it's something that uh, 
fraught with challenges. On a political level, could you and should you re-engage? I, I don't think so. Um, I don't think that, you know, that, that engaging with the military is going to provide a lot of benefits. Um, you know, certainly working with them on economic issues, um, I, I don't think that's advisable. Um, I know that there has been some discussion around um, humanitarian assistance, et cetera. Maybe Richard could speak a little bit more to that. Um, you know, as a, as a business, um, I, I think there's a lot of questions and challenges about how you do business in Myanmar moving forward. And it's not going to be the same for everybody. Um, there are many businesses that are already in Myanmar that have already invested, that already have people that are working for them. They're already selling things locally or exporting. And, you know, I think you probably want to approach those slightly differently than um, a new investment coming into Myanmar. It's important to, to, to understand businesses, not just as things that pay taxes to the military, but also, uh, you know, they provide goods and services to the people in the country that, that they're, they're things people need. Um, whether it's, you know, transportation services, whether it's um, food, whether it's um, healthcare services. Uh, it's not just that businesses are organizations that pay tax to the military and do nothing else. They do many other things that are essential for the ongoing lives of, of people in the country, not to mention that, that, you know, they create millions and millions of jobs. And, you know, so it's important to to kind of recognize those other things that businesses do that are essential to sustain. Um, but at the same time, thinking through where are the areas in the economy that benefit the regime the most and those that really don't benefit the regime very much at all. And so you can point to certain parts of the economy. Um, we've already talked about the apparel sector a, a pretty good amount. And that's an area where the military really sees very, very little benefit yet the people of, of the country, it creates, you know, hundreds of thousands of jobs. And it's, it's, it's a pretty important sector for the country to, to kind of sustain itself and for the people of Myanmar to be able to sustain, to sustain themselves moving forward. You also see, you know, parts of the agricultural economy, sectors like uh, beans and pulses. It's, it's not a small export, but it's an area that's, quite decentralized, where you don't have a lot of military involvement. Um, parts of the economy like this, you know, those are areas that, you know, that, that you'd really not want to try to limit investment and economic activity in. Um, other areas like oil and gas, uh, that's a much different thing. That provides a lot of revenue to the regime. And, you know, I think the the standards around doing business in the oil and gas sector need to be much different than they are in, in parts of the economy that the regime doesn't really have much influence over and doesn't benefit much from. Okay, Richard. So what is your take on this question? How to re-engage, if at all? And, and if you do, how do you do it? I mean, I agree with everything that, that Jared has said. Um, I think the question for people who were involved in development and humanitarian is how now best can you support the vulnerable people in Myanmar through the very, very difficult uh, years ahead? And that's got much, much more complicated uh, than it used to be uh, in the sense that, firstly, this is a macroeconomic crisis and a political crisis. Uh, 
it's it's not a humanitarian crisis. It has humanitarian implications and humanitarian consequences, but the root cause is a political crisis uh, and, and a macroeconomic crisis. And you can't respond to a macroeconomic crisis with humanitarian aid. I mean, humanitarian budgets are just not big enough to do that. You can't support an entire country. The tools and mechanisms of humanitarian aid are not designed to help, you know, peri-urban populations. Uh, you know, they're much better at dealing with a part of a country that's been hit by a cyclone or, or even by a, by a civil war. So, you know, humanitarian assistance is incredibly important, but it won't be uh, the solution to the crisis that Myanmar is, is, is going through. Now, in a, you know, in a in a, in a sense, uh, the the kinds of engagement that you would need to go beyond that are precisely the kinds of engagement that one doesn't want to do for other reasons. Uh, and we know that the regime is not primarily motivated by improving the situation of ordinary people. It's it's uh, it's it's not at all concerned by the welfare of ordinary people. And so there's a high risk of instrumentalization of, of development assistance and, and other things. So, you know, all of those things have to be factored together. But also, you know, the population of the country is saying, at this point, we don't want uh, engagement with the regime. And, and you know, that, that's a practical issue. Uh, you know, the, 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 the view of the population has to be taken into account. It has to be taken into account, obviously, for political reasons, but it also has to be taken into account for practical reasons. In the 90s and 2000s, there wasn't an upswell of people saying we don't want engagement with the regime for childhood vaccinations. Now, engagement with the health ministry to talk about vaccinations is a contentious issue. But, you know, that's the, that's the kind of challenge that is being faced. I think in thinking about how to respond to this, a lot depends on timeframes. I mean, when, you know, when the resistance and the broad base of Myanmar people were calling for the deliberate collapse of the economy in the days and weeks after the coup, it was on the expectation. The public opinion was so set against the regime and its military takeover that, you know, this would be a short term uh, issue that, you know, in, in a matter of months, it was inevitable that there would be an overthrow of the regime. I think if we're looking at years, you have to take a different approach to how to protect vulnerable people. And that does mean probably uh, some uh, engagement with state structures, uh, if it's local health uh, systems to give vac childhood vaccinations, um, you know, these, these kinds of things. Um, but at the same time, one has to be extremely cautious about, uh, about engaging with the regime in a way that it can take advantage of, it can manipulate, and it can instrumentalize. So it's a navigation. I think it's not a black and white issue. Um, you know, it's a risk-benefit issue, but incredibly difficult uh, to, to navigate. Okay, yeah, thank you very much for sharing your thoughts on Myanmar's economy, and for um, thank you for our listeners to listening to Myanmar in a potshell. So I think we have learned that that uh, Myanmar is in a long-term economic crisis, which is not maybe as visible as the crisis in Sri Lanka, but which uh, anyway has very uh, long-lasting effects uh, on the country. And that it is about like to find like maybe niche where you can support the people, especially the vulnerable people, without sustaining the military. So you need some creative uh, approaches or solutions. And uh, as Richard said, that humanitarian aid might not be enough To, to support the whole country because the whole country uh, is in dire needs. Yeah, thank you. And um, please tune in again next time uh, to Myanmar in a Potshell. Push, 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 push.